0: Even though she was very close to the Pope for most of her life, she was still looked upon as a mere nun at times, even by Pius himself. Church clergy maintain an inbred prejudice mentality, which is entirely convinced that the male mind is right in the final analysis and must never yield to female pressure. Pius was certainly a Pope with that kind of intellect. Richard Cushing, the Cardinal Archbishop of Boston. and welcome to the other half. Episode 4.26, Pascalina Leynart, The Powerful Virgin. Last time, a young Bavarian peasant girl enrolled as a nun and caught the eye of a rising star in the Catholic Church. Pascalina's work ethic, attention to detail, and intense loyalty saw her come to Rome into the service of Cardinal Eugenio Pacelli, the Pope's right-hand man. As Europe slid towards catastrophe in 1939, she stiffened the Vatican's response to Hitler and Mussolini, though only to an extent. When we left the action, the Pope had died, leaving Cardinal Pacelli ideally placed to become the next man on the throne of St. Peter. This will be the final episode of Women of the Vatican, the fourth season of The Other Half podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have, Not having the best knowledge of Italian history before I started on this journey with you, it's been a fascinating ride for me as well, with some extraordinary characters. After this episode, I'll be going on my usual hiatus to prepare for the next season, which I will bring to you in the new year. Keep an eye out on my social media accounts for a firm return date. You can find me on Facebook and Twitter, just search for The Other Half Podcast and you'll find the show. As to what that next season will be, well, I'm afraid you're going to have to wait until the end of this episode to find out. Think of it as an additional reward. Think of it as an added incentive, a reward for completing this long quest with me. If you'd like to support the show, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. And remember, as I said, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. To all my new listeners, welcome to the rest of you, Welcome back. In the two millennia history of the papacy, the pope-makers had solely been men. Popes had been selected via conclave since the 13th century, and in all that time, only men had ever been admitted into that secluded zone. Women like Olympia Maldolkini had influenced proceedings from the outside, but the conclave itself was the ultimate sausage fest. So when Pascalina asked Cardinal Pacelli if she could join him in the conclave in March 1939, he said no. It was against the rules. It was impossible. But just as Pascalina had rebelled against not being allowed in the field with her brothers as a child, she retorted that Jesus had never excluded women from his household. So what right did he have to deny her? At this Pacelli's resolve broke. His heart had never really been in it in any case. The weight of the world was on his shoulders. He hugged her close, asking her to please help him. The two of them huddled together and came up with a solution. Pasqualina would not be allowed in the chapel itself, that would be one step too far, but Pacelli's private apartments would become part of the enclosed conclave. She would be, though, in the sealed-off zone, the first woman to enter the conclave. You might have expected her to be smuggled in, but she strode in bold as brass in front of the world's media. Her attendance in the conclave was bound to get out at some point. If they didn't hide it, maybe it wouldn't look so scandalous. The excuse given was that she was necessary for Pacelli's health. On the 1st of March 1939, Pacelli conducted a search of the area subject to the conclave and personally locked the doors all telephone lines were cut. They were sealed off from the outside world. Pasqualea later recalled, quote, A feeling of indescribable strangeness swept over me, which I had never felt before. She would now be the first female witness to this ancient ritual. As we've seen in this series, papal conclaves could be lengthy and controversial affairs. Elongated power struggles, shouting matches, and sometimes literal fights over the church's future. Papal Conclave of 1939 was not one of those occasions. A number of potential candidates did have some support, but Pacelli had long been groomed for the role and had a great deal of backing. At an electorate of 62, he received around 30 votes on the first ballot, only a handful away from the two-thirds supermajority required. Black smoke was sent through the chimney. Pasquena watched all of this from the corner, hidden from view, but still able to keep an eye on Pacelli and attend to his every need. The second ballot took place the next day, and this time he received nearly 50 votes, securing his victory and election as Pope. However, according to Pasquena, Pacelli turned them down. Before all of the cardinals, he asked them to vote again for someone else, before rushing off to be alone. Paschalina ran after him and found him in an empty room. He looked as though he had the weight of the world on his shoulders. Plagued by self-doubt, he didn't think he was the man to lead the church into such troubled times. As she reached him, he stumbled and fell heavily onto the marble floor. He cried out in pain, yelling out, Have pity on me, I am not worthy. Paschalina comforted and fortified him saying, quote, you have the moral strength and the physical stamina to be Christ's vicar on earth. It is not for you to decide. Jesus has spoken and has chosen you. She led him back into the chapel and to the assembled cardinals, who announced that they had held another vote and come to a unanimous verdict. Pacelli was their man. Now this, of course, all happened behind closed doors, and there are other accounts of what happened here which omit this breakdown and moment of self doubt for Pacelli. Whatever the truth, on the 2nd of March 1939, on Eugenio Pacelli's 63rd birthday, white smoke billowed from the Vatican chimney, signifying the election of a new pope. A few days later, he was formally crowned as Pope Pius XII in front of 70,000 onlookers in St Peter's, in a ceremony broadcast around the world on TV and radio. Why pious? Well, it was a very popular name for 20th century popes. Three of his last five predecessors had had that name. And it was a tribute as well to his immediate predecessor, who had been such an important part of his own elevation to the role. As with other popes in this series, I will now switch to using his pontifical name, but remember that Pius and Pacelli are the same person, An elevation in status does not change the nature of the man. Pasquena was also risen in position, becoming the new Pope Pius' right-hand woman. According to church historian Corrado Pallenberg, she rigorously supervised everything, from major decisions to minute details, she kept the Pope's papers in order, his desk supplied with writing paper, his fountain pen filled, and she changed the Pope's cuffs, which he so often soiled with ink while writing. He took to dictating to Pasqualina not only official papers, but also the daily entries in his private diary. This became a regular practice, and so Pasqualina was able to share the Pope's innermost thoughts. His trust in her was complete, and with good reason, For she never once, not even inadvertently, betrayed his confidence. To Pius, she was absolutely indispensable, but to those around her, she appeared almost tyrannical. Her detractors, and there were many, called her despotic, short tempered, and terrifying, though one must wonder how much of this is just outrage at a woman having such a prominent position. She was nicknamed Virgo Potens, or the powerful virgin. And her influence was felt immediately. One of the Pope's first actions was to appoint a new Archbishop of New York. Most of the Catholic hierarchy had a candidate in mind. Her Pascalina favoured an old friend, Bishop Francis Spellman. She had worked for him in the Vatican Press Office, and he had been kind to her when very few others had done so. He was also favoured by President Roosevelt. The Pope, as was his nature, prevaricated but eventually was persuaded by Pascalina and Spellman was appointed. While Spellman was a worthy candidate, no one was in any doubt why he had been appointed, about whose influence had led him to high office. Just three days after Pius's coronation, Germany invaded Czechoslovakia. General war in Europe was narrowly averted, but it would surely be joined soon. Pius rejected an offer at this time by the Protestant churches to lead an interfaith alliance to oppose the Nazis. This would have suggested that Catholics were on a par with Protestant faiths, and he felt that no Catholic pope could ever agree that. He also did not speak out against Mussolini's invasion of Albania, and he also congratulated General Franco for the magnificent victory of his quote-unquote Catholic forces in the Spanish Civil War. All over Europe fascism was on the march and Pius wasn't exactly positioning himself in opposition to it. He even withdrew from a proposed European peace conference that he had organized possibly due to pressure from Mussolini. In an age of appeasement, Pius was the arch appeaser. Pasolina hated fascism, so one might expect her to have opposed this course of action. Certainly she tried to encourage him to take a stiffer approach but she found that the pressures of office had changed her friend. When she tried to influence him, he snapped, telling her to know her place, quote, as a woman and as a nun. Paslina was stunned into silence by this outburst, and though he did later apologise, she was reticent to bring it up again. She watched on, helplessly, as the Pope allowed his pro-German sympathies to blind him to Hitler's true intentions. Perhaps he still saw him as that penniless corporal that had called upon him two decades before. This perhaps demonstrates the limits of Pascalina's influence, or maybe the limits of her own anti-fascist fervor. She didn't want war any more than Pius did. Perhaps these sacrifices could avert a more terrible struggle. Remember that Pius had seen the horror of war in the last great conflagration, it had nearly destroyed Europe and almost broken him. He wanted to be a Pope of peace, but it was abundantly clear to all, including Pascalina, that his would be a very different fate. War broke out in Europe on the 3rd of September 1939, following the German invasion of Poland. The Pope said, Nothing. Even when the Soviet Union went into Poland as well, sealing that unholy alliance of Bolshevism and Nazism, the Vatican remained silent. Indeed, it was not for a month and a half until the 20th of October that Pius released his encyclical, known to history as Darkness Over the Earth, in which he condemned war and decried violence against civilians. He did not, though, call out either side. He was determined to remain neutral just as Pope Benedict XV had during the First World War. By steadfastly committing to neutrality in the face of such nakedly anti-Christian behaviour and philosophy on the part of the Axis powers, it was widely believed that the Pope was pro-fascist. He was known to be a Germanophile. His time as Papal nuncio to Germany had engendered a great love of that country. Perhaps he had gone native and was minded to side with Hitler. This was not true, but it's easy to see why some might come to that conclusion. His early attempts at appeasement were out of a genuine desire to maintain peace, and his later neutral stance during the war had some logic to it that even Pasqualina agreed with. Germany, and especially Italy, were full of Catholics that could turn against the Holy Father should he come out against their countries. And of course, the Vatican itself would surely be taken by fascist forces should he turn against them. So even as evidence of Nazi war crimes piled up, as stories of the extermination of Jews and members of other faiths poured into the Vatican, Pius said nothing. And of course, with Pasolena seen as having massive influence over the Holy Father, she has been tarred with the same brush one of her primary opponents in the Vatican was Eugène Tisserand, a French cardinal and ardent supporter of the Allied cause. He was hugely frustrated at the neutral course pursued by the Pope, and saw Pascalina as a roadblock, once exclaiming, quote, The woman thwarts all of our opinions and decisions! The irony was that Pascalina's actual views were far more in line with Tisserand than with the Pope. But her loyalty was to Pius and so she backed him. Indeed, throughout the war, pasolina viewed her main job, her only job really, was the Pope's welfare. No detail was too small for her attention. As the stresses of his job built, so did his temper, and pasolina absorbed a great number of tantrums. It's no wonder she was so particular with the Vatican staff. In private, she urged him repeatedly to speak out against Nazi persecutions, But the Pope thought it would make no difference, that it would do more damage than good. Pasquena did not agree, and neither do most historians. British, Canadian, and American forces invaded Italy in the summer of 1943, bringing the war to the peninsula. In July, the first bombs fell on Rome. Mussolini's Italian government did little to alleviate the suffering of ordinary Romans, who suffered the brunt of these raids. But the Pope did his part. He and Pasquena went out into the streets and personally gave out money, supplies, and comfort. Mussolini quickly fell from power and Italy sued for peace. But the war was far from over in Italy. German troops swept down from the Alps, taking Rome in September 1943. There were around seven to 10,000 Jews in Rome at this time, all of whom were now at risk of deportation and extermination. Pascalina implored Pius to invite them to the Vatican and bring them under his protection. He had his Swiss guards, and more to the point, he had the soft power of the Holy See. He could save a lot of lives if he would only act. Pope Pius thought for a moment before replying, Sister Paschalina, our Saviour speaks through your mind and heart. You have moved the Holy Father at last. Working alone and in secret, Pasquina forged and then issued hundreds, perhaps thousands of Vatican identity cards for Roman Jews. She saved a lot of lives, but not everyone was lucky enough to reach the safety of the Vatican. In the second month of the German occupation of Rome, the SS went into the ghetto and began bringing Jews to the train station for deportation to Auschwitz death camp. The Pope was alerted to what was going on, but astonishingly did and said nothing. In all, around 1,800 Jews were rounded up here and sent to the death camps. Almost none survived. But thanks to Pascalina and many other brave people who offered assistance and shelter at great personal risk, most of the city's Jews did manage to survive. Alongside this, Pasqualina's other great humanitarian effort during the war was as one of the leaders of the Pontifical Relief Committee. During the First World War, Bishop Pacelli, as he was then, had formed arguably the world's first humanitarian aid programme, and he tapped Pasqualina to lead one in this war. Through the PRC, Pasqualina distributed food, clothing, Medicine, and around 7,000 US dollars per day on average to the needy and refugees. She organized food trucks and trains to keep coming into the city during the occupation, and these usually left with quite a few refugees escaping the Nazis. This was not a small operation. Thousands of men, women, and children were housed in the Vatican, all needing food and shelter. This was a huge logistical challenge that she took on personally. It was just the kind of organisational puzzle that she was born to do, and she rose to the moment magnificently. This would have been hard enough were it not for its clandestine dual purpose. The Nazi occupiers suspected that there were Jews hidden away in the Vatican and conducted numerous surprise searches, but they were never able to outwit Pasqualina. Her secret weapon was the German ambassador, Baron von Wiesacker, whom she brought into the Pope's inner circle when she discovered he was no fan of Hitler. Rome was liberated by British and American forces in June 1944, a moment of incredible relief for Pasqualina. The war was far from over, but the end was beginning to come in sight. Around six weeks later, Pasqualina received a surprise visitor, Clara Patacci. Following his ousting from power, Mussolini had been imprisoned by the new Italian authorities and then sprung from jail by German commandos. He was installed as the puppet leader of German-occupied Italy and lived in Salo along with his mistress, Clara Petacci. She was the daughter of the previous Pope's doctor and was well known to the Vatican. She had smuggled herself past Allied lines, hoping to strike a deal with the Pope. She told Pasolina that if Pius would act as intermediary and spoke on his behalf, Mussolini would sell out Hitler and switch sides. When Pasolina told Pius of this conversation, he was absolutely furious. How dare she speak with this woman who was living in sin with a tyrant? It was unthinkable. He would not countenance it. His objection seemed to primarily focus on the fact that Clara was a mistress, rather than Mussolini's crimes, but that wasn't exactly out of character for this Pope. Pasolini, though, was dead set on the plan. She hated Mussolini and always had done, but a deal with him could shorten the war and save many lives. She managed to talk the Pope around, and a peace proposal was sent to Allied headquarters. However, General Eisenhower turned them down. It was unconditional surrender or nothing, and Mussolini would not be allowed to get off scot-free. Pasquino was tapped to pass on the bad news to Petacci. The following year, she and Mussolini were captured by partisans while trying to escape across the Alps, and were summarily executed. Shortly after hearing the news, Pasquino received a letter from Petacci. It read, in part, quote, I am following my destiny. I do not know what will become of me, but I cannot question my fate. The end of the war in September 1945 brought huge relief, but dark clouds lingered around the Vatican. Clergy in Sicily were being accused of being in league with the mafia, with confessionals being used as conduits for organised crime. The Pope wasn't very much interested in these allegations, so campaigners went to Pascalina. She was frustrated that Pius was making the same mistake with the mafia as he had with the fascists that he was adopting an aggressively neutral course that would further erode the church's moral authority. Once again, whenever she confronted him about it, he would either fob her off or tell her to stay in her lane. This happened even when a Sicilian priest came with evidence that mafia-aligned priests in Sicily were murdering colleagues and terrorising the island. It was only when that same priest was murdered that Pius was spurred into action, He dispatched Pasolini to Sicily herself to investigate. She worked with the police to gather evidence and had enough to prosecute several churchmen whose outside interests ranged from extortion to drug running. But once more, Pope Pius got cold feet. How would it look if this came out? What damage would this do to the already beleaguered reputation of the Catholic Church? Pius ensured that these criminal friars were not brought to trial, Indeed, this would not happen until the 1960s, many years after his death. Part of the problem was the incredible concentration of power in the Pope's hands and the limited number of people that had any influence over him. This was something Pascalina was deeply complicit in. Ironically for someone so opposed to fascism, she herself had deeply autocratic tendencies. She later explained that in every successful organization there can only be one leader, and that leader must be wise and courageous and be feared by those under him. She was fanatical about her role as gatekeeper, as Pius's shield against distracting voices. But like all autocratic managerial systems, this led to poor decision making due to the lack of diverse opinions and the great deal of resentment amongst those who are being ignored. And while Pius received a lot of this criticism, most of it was directed at Pasqualina. She was, after all, the human face of the door that was shut in their way. Not everyone found that the way was shut, though. She had a weakness for film stars, for example. Cardinals were outraged to find their audiences delayed or even cancelled because the Pope was deeply engaged with the likes of Clark Gable. Of course, this was not all Pasqualina's doing – Pius's stern and autocratic leadership style was established long before she came to work for him. She later recalled, quote, He was such a hard, efficient and precise worker himself, he could not accept slackness, delays or mistakes in others. When he found someone in the wrong, no matter their position in the Holy See, he let the offender have a piece of his mind without mincing his words. Indeed, she often bore the brunt of his frustration and anger. But this was not often seen by others, and so she and he were seen as being in lockstep. An example of this came in 1950. In a decree named Munificentissimus Deus, Pius decreed that the body of the Virgin Mary had been taken to glory in heaven and did not remain on earth to await the resurrection. This rewriting of Catholic doctrine was deeply controversial, and Pasquena was blamed as she was known to be a devoted follower of Mary. But though she supported this decree and defended it to the hilt, it was not her decision. Pius was more than capable of making his own decisions, and this one was very much his. By the start of the 1950s, Pius was in his 70s, and there were growing concerns about his health and faculties. He was ill increasingly frequently, and people began to notice him struggling with the demands of the job. Whispers loudened to active discussions amongst the College of Cardinals that maybe he needed to hand over some of his responsibilities, perhaps even retire. This would mean, of course, sidelining Pasolina, and she was not about to let that happen. Cardinals, most notably her old for Cardinal Tisseron, grew ever more confident in their criticism of Pasqueline and began to test the limits of their power. This tinderbox ignited over a controversy around the Pope's accounts. Tisserand went to Pasqualina and demanded to see them rather brusquely. Offended by his manner, she refused to hand them over, to which Tisserand exploded in anger. Quote, Either you give us the report, woman, or we'll get it from the Pope himself. It's not him we don't trust, it's you. Pascalina, with an icy stare that never left Tisseron's face, reached for her phone and called the Swiss guards to escort the cardinal out. This demonstration of the authority of a mere nun over one of the Vatican's most powerful cardinals only further embittered the college against her. They labelled her La Popessa. She was not always able to impose her authority over the cardinals. For example, she persuaded Pius to launch an investigation into the Knights of Malta. He was, as usual, reluctant to rock the boat and so agreed, but then put the cardinals in charge. Pasqualina knew this would only result in a shady cover-up, but when she protested, he retorted, quote, You must learn to have more respect for the purple. But these occasions were pretty rare. No one was in any doubt she was the second most important person in the Vatican. And as Pius grew ever older and ever more senile, her power only grew. She had no formal position as such. She didn't need one. Cardinals had fancy titles and fancy hats, but she held what was most important, which was the trust of the Pope. It was said that the Pope had two lines of defence. The first was the Swiss Guards. The second, the more fearsome, was Pascalina. The Pope had a serious health scare in 1954, during which he claimed to have had a vision from Jesus himself. He was the first Pope since St. Peter to have made such a claim, and it was met with a great deal of criticism. Even the most ardent believers were more inclined to see this as evidence of senility rather than divine will. Miraculous or not, he made a recovery, but his days were numbered. These years were the hardest of Pasqualina's life. The pressures of work were enormous for nun. now in her mid-60s of course, as was the pain of seeing the man she'd served and loved for all these years waste away before her eyes. In the autumn of 1958, he suffered an attack of the hiccups, followed by a stroke. He died on the 9th of October. The grief at the loss of her great friend, boss and mentor was overwhelming for Pasqualina, but worse was to come. The College of Cardinals elected as the successor, Pope John XXIII, a man she thought to be an absolute clown who would undo everything that Pius had achieved during his pontificate. The new establishment wasted no time in showing Pasqualina the door. She was the past, a symbol of their emasculation and powerlessness. One imagines they took some relish in exiling her from the Vatican no one was there to see her off. There was no recognition of her decades of service, of the lives she had saved during the war. She was seen struggling into a taxi alone, with just two bags and the cages of Pius' dead birds. It was a pitiful end to a career that had seen her become one of the most powerful women in Vatican history. She went into exile in a secluded convent in Switzerland, where she was left to deal with her grief and work on her memoirs. But that old spark never truly left her, and she returned to the Vatican a few years later with a new mission. She wants to found a sanctuary for old and lonely women. She was received by the Pope, but couldn't help but give him a stern lecture about everything she saw that was wrong about his regime. Unsurprisingly, this did not endear the new pontiff to Pascalina's scheme, and she was, politely, shown the door. She had to wait until the election of his successor, Pope Paul VI, before her dream could be realised. Pascalina's new sanctuary, Casa Pastor Angelicus, was built on a hill overlooking Rome, and there she settled, enjoying a well-earned retirement. She lived for another two decades dying in 1983 at the age of 89. For the daughter of poor Bavarian peasants, no one could have anticipated the heights to which Pasqualina would have reached. Like many of the women we have covered in this season, her life was inextricably bound with that of a man. All of her power and influence stemmed from Eugenio Pacelli, and without him, she would likely have lived her life in obscurity. But that is far from the complete picture for he never would have reached the papacy without Pascalina. She fortified him, encouraged him, and took care of him. She went from managing a papal nuncio's household to, essentially, running the Vatican. Her influence had its limits, but it was extensive, and her personal intervention during World War II saved many lives. Had she been a man, I do not doubt that she would have risen to the papacy. She had far more talent than her patron, But alas, that door was closed to her. Nevertheless, she made the most of the time she had. And that, ladies and gents, is the end of the fourth season of The Other Half. It's been emotional. But all times must end and we must move with them. So, what's coming next? Well, I am pleased to say that the season five of The Other Half will be covering Royal Mistresses. Concubines, kept women, whores, mistresses have been called many things and had very different social standings at different times across the world. From the harems of the East to the maîtresses en titre of early modern France, they are as much a part of the political history of the world as the queens they often competed with and the men with whom they shared a bed. Some were wives-in-waiting, others independent-minded lovers using their bodies to attain power. We will be going on a journey across the centuries and all over the world to see how different eras and cultures saw royal mistresses and the extraordinary impact they have had on our story. So join me in January 2023 as we look at the story of history's other woman.